Welcome to Mosaic Community Church, Philadelphia. We welcome you uh, to our service today. Our prayers that you will uh, relax, that you will learn something, will be challenged in a way that you may think about God and how God has, uh, has asked us to live together. Um, our prayer is that we center Jesus um, in our conversation, center Jesus um, in all that we do because uh, that's where he is in the center of our lives. So um, again, I welcome you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Angel Halstead. I'm the pastor here at Mosaic Community Church. And uh, good morning, Mosaic. We'd like to take at this time a, a moment to reflect on our last year. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. On March 13, 2020, the United States declared a national emergency. We want to take a moment to share a candle lighting ceremony with you in remembrance of this first year of COVID-19. The Meditation Small Group participated in this observance last Wednesday night and they shared it with me. I thought it was something we could share with the full community or I agreed with them that this was something that the full, our full community could participate in. We're going to light candles and share words of remembrance, of grief, and of hope. So please take a moment to settle yourselves, your family. And we will begin this candle lighting remembrance to honor those who have passed as a result of COVID-19 and to reflect upon its impact on us all. We light this first candle to represent our past. We could not have conceived of how profoundly our lives would be changed by this virus. Our grief is complex and we mourn for the ways in which life has changed. We light this second candle in honor and memory of the millions of people worldwide who have died from COVID-19. It feels impossible to comprehend such a large number. These may be people whom we have known and loved deeply. We may have provided care for them as they took their final breaths, or we may have only heard about them in church on the news, their names and images leaving lasting impressions. Each of these human beings were and are important. They will live, they will live on in our collective memory. person who has cared for members of the human family during this crisis. We hold close the healthcare workers on the front lines of hospitals, nursing homes, and home care who are diligent and compassionate in the midst of suffering and have been changed by what they have witnessed. 
We hold close all those caring for emotional needs who provide space for people to express themselves. We hold close all those people whose work ensures that we are fed and clothed. We hold close those who address the needs of our facilities, infrastructure, and transportation. We hold close teachers, parents, and other educators who share knowledge and model humility. We hold close our children who are bravely navigating this new world. We hold close spiritual leaders who offer solace as we explore questions that seem to have no answers. We light this fourth candle in support of all those who are grieving, including ourselves. We may be grieving for loved ones who died from COVID or from other causes during the pandemic. We may feel the pain of not being by their sides as they died and having to miss or postpone memorial services. We may know or be one of those who have recovered from the virus, but are still struggling with its lingering effects. We may feel a sense of collective loss that is difficult to describe, one that intersects with other losses in our lives. Our grief is valid. These four candles together also represent the four seasons of the year the days, weeks, and months that we have endured may have passed by in a blur as we faced the crises around us and felt the ache of isolation. Even so, we may also be able to remember moments when we connected with the natural world in new ways and observed our surroundings with fresh eyes. represent our future. We join together in hope for the health and well-being of the world, for new life, for equity and justice, and for clarity. We long for strengthened relationships with the people around us, and we will help each other maintain connections with those who have died. We will make space for ourselves to remember, to breathe, and to rest during this year and in the years to come. Hey guys, I'm excited to, um, to be a part of this when um, Kennedy asked me to um, do it. I was excited to be um, a part of Mosaic. Sometimes it feels like, you know, with COVID and not even meeting in person. So sometimes I don't feel like, and living in Delaware too, sometimes I don't feel like I'm a part of the community. So I'm glad that she asked me to do this in a way. And that um, I hope that me playing um, guitar can bring you, you know, some type of peace and it can be um, relaxing. Um, so here it is.
thank you guys. Um, I can end in prayer too. Um, dear God, thank you for um, just showing love to the um, children and that um, in your sacrifice that you did on the cross, it shows us that um, that you love us and that you pursue us and that there's nothing that we can do um, that can ever um, banish your love from us. So I pray for families and the kids, guys, as COVID is going on, that they can find peace in you and um, peace in their times in school um, and hanging out together so that we know that you're good and um, hope that you can show us that. In your name I pray, amen. All right, have a good week. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So our sermon today is letting go of what was to make room for more. Um, we are in the midst of a dilemma. At least that's how it feels, right? For so many of us, much of what we've been taught about God and how we are to live with one another is being called into question. And that process of challenging what we believe um, and how we live it out has thrown many of us off, off our game, off balance. After everything we've been taught about following Jesus, I don't remember, I don't remember having a class on what to do when you're struggling with your beliefs. There wasn't a class on how to question or reimagine faith. I didn't have that and I didn't know it existed until I came here to Mosaic and we, we have that small group um, and we're going to have it again soon. But something like that wasn't the norm in my church experience and I, I doubt for many of you it's the norm for you. I was taught about letting go of the world to make room for God, but there was no sermon or class for me entitled letting go of the church to make room for God, or more accurately, letting go of the church's teachings to make room for God. But when you think about it, aren't the Gospels about that? Jesus constantly, constantly said, he came to his own people, the Jewish people first. And Jesus called the people to challenge their faith. He called them to loosen their grip on what they thought they knew about God, to make room for God. So God could reveal God's self to human hearts. So this thing about challenging our faith, it's nothing new. It really isn't. Deconstructing our faith or reimagining our faith is not some new craze taking place in the church. And it's not a new threat to the church that's Jesus' body. In truth, it's part of the process of maturing, of growing up. It feels so challenging because the structures within the church have given us these prescriptions, these authoritative words on how we are to sustain religious thought, religious life, in our religious institutions. And much of that has overflowed into our day-to-day -day lives as a, as a nation. So much of our instruction has been given as edicts to be followed that it feels scary just to think about challenging them. We've built fear into the system. It's been instilled in many of us that if we challenge our beliefs, we're doing something wrong. We've somehow stopped being obedient to God and, and that somehow places our faith at risk. We're at risk of losing it. But that's kind of cultish. 
I mean, people will say, who are you to challenge God? And it's like, you know, that's that fear thing that keeps me from asking questions and makes me fall into whatever you say. And I don't want to do that. Nor do I want to lead a church uh, that follows that kind of thing. God invites us to come and reason together. And my job is for us to discern what the Spirit is telling us. I have a leadership role, and I'm not going to neglect the role that I have, but I'm not going to make more of the role than it was intended to be. So, that question, who am I to challenge God? I'm not challenging God. I'm seeking God. It's not that you're challenging God. Maybe, maybe not, but I don't look at it that way. I look at the seeking. I want to know God. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I understand that in knowing the power of the resurrection, there is fellowship in the suffering because I see what could be and what is not and I grieve it. I might challenge, I might be challenging church leaders or why Christians think the way they do or we do and, and why do we do the things we do. I'm not doing it to destroy my faith or yours. I'm doing it to hold on to my faith. Now maybe there's some people who are trying to destroy the faith, but I can't live in fear of their manipulations. I've got to go through my process. I want to encourage you to go through your process of growing up, of maturing in faith. Scripture says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish ways. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 11. How do we put away childish ways of, of, of thinking, childish things, without challenging our beliefs? When I give a sermon, I hope to give you some things to think about, to process with the Holy Spirit so you and I can grow up in this house of worship. Here, again, I am an authority. Yes, it's my role, but I view my role as a more authoritative guide for you. Scripture doesn't say that I, as pastor, will lead you into all truth. No. The scripture says the Spirit will. It's the Spirit's job to lead us in truth. My job is to point you toward the Spirit and to encourage you in your relationship, to develop it, to trust it, to mature in it. I know some of us have been taught in, our, uh, in, in some of the other denominations that we've been a part of um, that the Spirit isn't talking to us individually, nor is the Spirit speaking to us collectively. What we have, but we have so much more. You know, they say we have the Scripture, and the Scripture is the authoritative, and for now, the last word of God. Except, that's not what the Scripture itself teaches teaches us that the Spirit will lead and guide us, that we're in the process of discovery, of exploration, of curiosity, of growing to know more and more about who God is and the ways God chooses to interact with God's self, parent, child, and spirit, and in the ways that we're supposed to interact with humanity, the many being one, just as our God is a community of one. Sometimes it's hard to work that out. The scripture says, for now we see through a glass dimly. Again, 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 13, verses 12. For now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Now that's the traditional King James Version. Um, the New Living Version says it, or the New Living Bible says it this way. In the same way, we can see and understand only a little about God right now. 
as if we were peering at God's reflection in a mirror. But someday we are going to see God in God's completeness, face to face. Now I know, now, now, that, now all that I know is hazy and blurred, but then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. For me, these words speak of a process. And the story of Nicodemus found in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, which we heard earlier, demonstrates or shows us that process in the life of Nicodemus. He is an example of someone in scripture who did the work of challenging or deconstructing or reimagining his faith. So again, there's nothing new about this. Nicodemus came to Jesus secretly to talk. So why did he come secretly? Because challenging the, the faith practices of his time wasn't seen as a positive thing to do back then either. See, nothing new. Jesus spoke to him about being born again. And his response to Jesus was, how can this be? I've never heard about this. Jesus was, um, was like, Nicodemus, you are a teacher in Israel, and this is strange to you. It's like, have you never considered or thought about these things? That's the thing that's so incredible about this verse of scripture in, in John 3, verse 10. I mean, his response, you are a teacher and you don't know these things, is how it reads. And it's just like, have you never considered this? What, are you not, are you not trying to see into what, what we're saying to you? It's like Jesus is saying, I'm really not preaching anything new. You should have gotten this already in your considerations of the scripture, in your challenge of the scripture, in your interrogation of the scripture, in your deconstruction, deconstructing what is and what the scripture is saying and reimagining it for your time. And then Jesus goes on uh, to explain what he means to Nicodemus a second way. The first way he explained it was, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was like, can I enter a second time into my mother's womb? And that's where Jesus was like, bro, you're a teacher and you don't get it. So then he explained it a second time um, using Numbers 21. And that's the story where the children of Israel were out uh, and they were walking down the, the Red Sea Road. And they were complaining that there was no fresh water. They, they didn't have very uh, any diversity in their food. And they were complaining against God and they were complaining against Moses. And um, snakes were caused to come up and they started biting them and they were poisonous and Moses inquired of God what should we do and God told him to put a serpent on a flagpole and everyone who looks upon that pole will be healed and Jesus goes on to explain I'm going to be placed upon a pole and everyone who sees me who sees me will be healed who sees me their relationship with God will be healed. Who sees me, the relationship with humanity as represented by Moses in that chapter, will be healed. He wanted Nicodemus to get this, but he understood, Jesus understood, that it was a process for him to deconstruct what he's learned so he can make room for the rest of what God was trying to show and to share with Nicodemus and the world. Nicodemus, we see later on, was processing these insights to the challenges that, that Jesus posed to him. And he begins to talk about his new insights out loud in a room where they would not necessarily be accepted. There, there's a coming boldness to Nicodemus to openly challenge, to enter into that process, not just by himself secretly, 
secretly for, you know, uh, being afraid of what others might say because they see you sneaking to talk to Jesus and you don't want people to see that so you have to go late at night. You and I don't want people to know how we're challenging our thinking about homosexuality, challenging our thinking about abortion, challenging our thinking about women as, as lead head pastors, challenging our thinking about how our country was founded, challenging so we quietly talk about it with only a few friends so we won't get in trouble. But Nicodemus has moved through that process and now here he is, still nervous, I think, as I read the scripture. It's found in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 53. I won't read it all aloud, but I want us to focus um, on these scriptures. You see, we see Nick again down, he's down in, in verses 50 and 51. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a major festival in the Jewish calendar back then. And Jesus is teaching, and the people were stirred by what he said. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes, or anyone who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of their body will flow rivers of living water. So the guards came to the religious leaders, the chief priests and religious leaders of the time, and they informed them of what Jesus was saying to the people and the people's responses to it. And the leaders got upset at the guards um, for not bringing Jesus to them right then. And these leaders, uh, in their uh, anger with the guards, started to accuse and belittle them. What's wrong with you? Don't you know better than to believe this man and his ignorant followers? Are you getting swept up in this too? You should know better. And maybe some of that, some of you have heard before. Hmm, what are you doing? You shouldn't think like that. That's not good. What's wrong with you? Are you getting caught up in this trend? This trend is going to pass. You stay with what I taught you. See, the rabble of ignorant people, they said to the guards, or didn't know the law. They were like, it was like they were saying, we know the law. We know the scriptures, so listen to what we say. Or you're going to be found in contempt of God. If you question what we say and what we're doing, you're outside of the faith. You're outside of the teachings of the scripture if you challenge this. So it was into that context that Nicodemus speaks up. And he challenges their interpretation of the practices of faith. In verse 51, he says, Does our law convict a person without giving them a hearing and finding out what they're doing? And their response to Nicodemus was to belittle him. To try to keep Nick in this position where he remained a child when I was a child, that he remained a child. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood and thought like one. But then I grew up and was trying to put away childish things, but my teachers needed me to stay a child. They needed Nick to stay in that position, so they belittled him, or, and they made him feel as if he were ignorant. Go and search the scriptures for yourself. Because clearly you've got some things wrong and you don't understand. Look, no prophet is coming out of Galilee. But their response to Nicodemus' challenge had nothing to do with what Nicodemus said to them. It was their justification, their own justification for their behavior. We know more than you do. Little one, go study the scripture some more, and you might just get it. So you see, not only is challenging the scripture not a new thing, but people trying to keep us in a position that says, we don't know enough, we're too immature, we're too young to really understand these things. Listen to what I say. There's nothing new about that either. And then we see Nicodemus again after Jesus' death in John 19, 38 through 42. 
Nicodemus no longer cares what people think. He doesn't care who sees him roll up to Joseph of Arimathea with like a hundred pounds, a hundred Roman pounds of spices. For us, that's like 75 pounds today of spices to put on the body of Jesus to, 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 to bury him. This teacher of Israel came to provide this service to Jesus, a Jewish man. This service is called a tahara, the ritual of purifying the body of the deceased. This task he's doing is called Shiva Kadesh, Kadisha. And please excuse me for all my, my brothers and sisters who are part of the, her the Jewish heritage if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. No, I probably am. But this, this, this task of Shiva Kadisha is tending to the dead. This is viewed as doing a kindness or a favor that the deceased cannot repay. It's looked upon highly. And if, but if it's looked upon so highly and so favorably, where are Jesus' closest disciples? who owe Jesus everything. Where are they? They couldn't do this kindness for Jesus because they were afraid that people would see them and that they would be accused. Joseph and Nicodemus in this instance were more mature than those of his closest disciples. They extended this grace to Jesus, not caring about the accusation or the shame that caring for this Jewish man would bring upon them. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, part B. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. King James again. The Living Bible says, Now all that I know is hazy and blurred. But then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. It's funny how when we were young, uh, we could speak so definitively about things. Um, but as we've gotten older, we recognize that we don't know as much as we, we thought we did. For some of us, it's freeing because we can relax. I don't have to know. It's just not possible. I can relax into this and walk this out and grow. For others, though, the uncertainty is untenable. They can't stand it. So they double down on their beliefs and their practices without challenge. They just blindly follow. But our faith is not about blindly following. Our faith is about trust, trusting in a relationship with the living God, the God who is real, the God who is everywhere, the God that is inside of us. He promises, or she promises, they promise that even in this journey, when we touch uncertainty, that they, that God will not leave us. God won't forsake us. And even when we dare to challenge portions or even all that we've been taught, God will not leave us and God will not forsake us. There was this French philosopher, John Ricoeur, and I'm not French, so I'm probably not saying that right either. But he said this, when you first approach a text, there is and innocence. We take it as it is. We take it with joy. We take it with just this, this, this full appreciation and gratitude for this new knowledge that's coming to us. We take it as it is. But then we move to a place where we establish a critical distance, where we can step back from the text to see it more clearly. We interrogate it. We ask it questions we assess. And this interrogation, this critical distance leaves, leads us to a second innocence. Recruiter's uh, specific, specific words were, beyond the desert of criticism, we wish to be called again. 
We're not challenging or deconstructing or reimagining our faith to walk away from it. People may have shared words or thoughts that made us think that. If you challenge, you can't, oh, it's, you, you're doubting God, something's wrong with you, you're, you're backsliding, you, you're not faithful. Some of those people we've been very close to, some of them are our parents, and they hear us trying to figure and sort through these things, challenging things that they accepted, and they, you know, they may have walked it further and thought, you know, you know, in my in my time of, of challenge, I came to this point and this is it. But we're taking it to the next place. And they are feeling uh, insecure for us. They want us to be safe. And out of maybe a more positive hope, they say some things. And it hurts us. But still we're compelled to challenge, to question, to interrogate. They may see it as us walking away from our faith, but in truth, we're leaving our innocence and walking into our desert. Just as Jesus entered his desert, where he was challenged, this is the place where we are challenged. But the goal is not to stay in the desert. Sometimes we get challenged or we come to this place of challenge and it is so unnerving. It unbalances us so much that we think we have to leave our faith completely behind. We have to walk away because the challenges are so huge. But here's the surprise. God will not leave you, hasn't left you, has not forsaken you. God understands that this is a part of the process of us maturing and it doesn't scare God for you to be where you are in the challenge. Doesn't make God nervous in any way, shape, or form. You're leaving childhood and you're becoming an adult. Our desire while we're in the desert is to hear God calling us to innocence again, calling us to a revelation of a, a deeper revelation of who God is and, and how God's ways work in the earth. And we hit that second innocence again with joy, with curiosity, with hope. But we had to go through the desert to get to this place of growth. To learn to let go of what was. That's what we're learning through the process. Innocence, critical distance, second innocence. And I believe the cycle repeats itself for many of us again and again. Because even when Jesus was in the desert, the scripture says that, 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 that Satan left him for a season. And so we have our seasons where we enter into this process because we continue to mature. Now I see through a glass dimly. Things are hazy and blurry. But my hope is that I will be known, that I will know God in the same way that God knows my heart. We have to let go, be willing to let go of what was so we can make room for more, for deeper, for wonder, for curiosity, for exploration, for a deeper revelation of our God. I hope this has helped you today. I hope this has, you know, calmed all those voices that say you're doing something wrong. You aren't doing anything wrong. My encouragement is a simple reminder. You weren't created to stay in the desert. You can hear God's call to innocence again. May God bless you.
morning. Let's worship together.
because of who you are. I will lift my voice and say, Lord, I worship you because of who you are. Lord, I worship you because of who you are. Amen. That is a fun song, and it's a long time since I sang it. Uh, it's a long time since I've seen many of you, and um, this was fun, but it, it's not quite as fun as, as singing in front of all of you and hearing your voices and feeding off that energy, and I look forward to being able to do that soon. Peace to all of you. Love to all of you. Amen.